0: turn on our Bibles to the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 17 with one hand, and then with the other hand we'll turn to uh, Genesis chapter 11, studying the book of Revelation on Sunday morning, and then hold your place even after the reading in Genesis because we'll refer to it later as well. Revelation chapter 17. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, that is, the Apostle John, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names and blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build uh, ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, And they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, as always, to be able to turn to your word. It's unchanging. Um, The world that we live in, our own individual lives, more often than not, just roiling, as the seas and we need an anchor we need a solid something and someone in our lives that doesn't move and doesn't change and you are that someone and your word is that something thank you for your love for us thank you that you're greater than every problem we have and every problem that we will ever face thank you for the joy and the blessing of this Christian life of knowing you, being able to walk with you, to live life as you have always intended it to be lived. Thank you for the privilege. Open your word up to us this morning, we pray, and speak to us and our individual lives this morning through it by your Spirit. And we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Coming to the end of chapter 16 last week, we uh, concluded the section of the Revelation that deals with the chronology of the seal and the trumpet and the bowl judgments. The chronology stops at the end of chapter 16 and it will continue in chapter 19 when there is the record of the battle of Armageddon and of Jesus' second coming. In chapters 17 and 18, we have another one of those passages that are known as parenthetical passages, where God pauses in the chronology in order to tell us some of the things that are going on uh, that, aren't, uh, that are a part of the chronology, but they need greater elaboration to occur so that we can follow what it is that He's doing and understand the revelation. Revelation chapter 17 is a description of God's destruction of what is known as spiritual Babylon. Chapter 18 is a description of God's destruction of what is known as commercial uh, Babylon. As we've studied in the book of Revelation, the church uh, or individual Christians will be removed from the earth prior to the tribulation uh, period, prior to this wrath that is poured out by God upon the earth at that time, for the simple reason that uh, the wrath that our sin deserves has already been borne by Christ upon the cross. And so the Bible teaches that as a result of that, another significant consequence of having trusted in Jesus is that we are not appointed unto God's uh, wrath. But sometimes we can think that once the church leaves the world by way of the rapture, that it is going to bring uh, religion and religious activity during the tribulation period to a halt. And yet nothing could be further uh, from uh, the truth. There is a world religion that is going to achieve supremacy in the tribulation period uh, as uh, as the uh, church is taken out in the church's absence and it will come to fill the entire world. And in fact, uh, as we'll see, uh, most religion that is being exercised in the world today will go on completely uninterrupted by the rapture of the church and even much of what <clears throat> is represented is representing <clears throat> excuse me Jesus Christ in the world and churches that claim to represent uh, him properly uh, many of those churches will hardly be dented uh, by the rapture, and perhaps more on that uh, next time. And here, I think, as we talk about God's destruction of spiritual or religious Babylon, it's important to understand the difference between Christianity and between uh, religion. We might uh, broadly define religion as representing uh, man's attempt to reach up to God, man's attempt to uh, make himself acceptable to God, to make himself uh, worthy of, of heaven on the basis of our own human effort, our own wisdom, uh, our own good works. And that's, uh, that's a nice uh, broad kind of definition uh, related to religion, to establish a relationship with God that is based upon uh, works, our good works, typically in religion, man is <clears throat> excuse me, is the initiator in a relationship with God, and God is the responder to our human efforts and so you do these good things, and then God will do these good things for you. Christianity is the exact opposite of all of this. It is not based upon man reaching up to God, based upon our own good works, because we understand that our very best efforts, uh, the, the best of our good works on our best days will never be good enough for us to establish a right standing before God. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, captured this perfectly and and very graphically, in Isaiah chapter sixty-four, verse six, and he writes, "But we are, are all like an unclean thing, and our righteousnesses are like filthy rags." He does not say our Unrighteousnesses are like filthy rags, he says, our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Us on our best day, uh, and, and based upon our best efforts are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Because even when we do the right thing, it can be done with the wrong motives and self-exaltation or to get back at somebody else or, or to be seen. or We just muddle and mar uh, everything. In the New Testament, we could quote verses on this subject all morning long. But here's a verse that captures it. With a, with a clarity that can't be misunderstood in Romans chapter 3 verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not a single human being. Uh, not one of us can stand righteous before God on the basis of our own efforts or on the basis of our own uh, righteousness. He is too pure for that and we are too impure and we don't want him to be any less pure or holy than he is even if it allowed a way for us to be saved by him becoming like that what was that song so many years ago talking about god being a slob like one of us what if he was well he's not but who would want that? Who would want just a bigger, stronger, marginally wiser one of us? And discover that at the end of our search and our journey? No, we love God as He is. We love His power. We love His wisdom. We love His holiness. We love everything about Him in, in that regard. But it also means that I am, and every single person in the world as a sinner is unqualified to approach him, to engage in a relationship uh, with him based upon my own righteousness, because my unrighteousness, my righteousness is unrighteousness and and it's unacceptable. And thus, Christianity. Is man is God reaching down to man? God is the initiator, and we are the responders in Christianity and in this relationship uh, with with God. And so, God offers us salvation as a free gift. He offers us a personal relationship uh, with Himself, based not upon anything we can do to earn that or anything. Uh, that we can do for Him in this regard, but based solely upon what He has done for us in His Son, in providing us with a Savior in Jesus Christ. The most famous verse in the Bible illustrates this. Jesus is speaking, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, He's the initiator. For God so loved the world that He gave... His only begotten Son, that whosoever... Now that's us, that's the responder. It's in a, He initiates, we respond. In every part of the Christian life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that the righteousness of Jesus... A righteousness, a right on a rightness in the eyes of God that we could never achieve on our own is put to our account. The language that the, body, the Bible uses is that it is imputed uh, to us. So that when God looks at us now as Christians, He does not see our unrighteousness in terms of a qualification for relationship with God. He sees Jesus' righteousness put to our account that allows us to have uh, the fullness of that relationship with God that only Jesus can provide. this is why... Oftentimes you'll hear a a, a Christian describe Christianity in this way. They'll say, uh, Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. And what they're trying to do when a Christian says that is they're trying to make this distinction. Uh, This is about a relationship that we have with God based upon God's offer of a Savior and of a salvation that we have received in responding to God's offer. It is not a religion. And and it's absolutely true, and and it emphasizes that Jesus was uh, died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day, not supremely to provide the world with another religion or to provide even Christians now with some kind of a great religious structure and organization that we should become now the supreme focus of our love and of our attention but rather to bring us into relationship with him. The very relationship that we've been created for. There's a corporate element of Christianity but Christianity as at, at its core is individual. It is individual people Uh, Born again by virtue of trusting in Jesus. Now there is a a sense in which the statement that Christianity is not a religion uh, is uh, not technically or entirely true. Because our English word religion comes from a Latin word that means to link. And in this sense Christianity is the only religion in the world. Because only Christianity provides a genuine, God-initiated link between God and man. And with it, the capacity for us to have a relationship with Him. And so when Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. He is not boasting, He is simply telling the truth about how a person can come to know God and enter into a relationship uh, with him. Now God provides in chapter 17 a very detailed description of this false religious system that is going to exist during uh, certainly the early part of the tribulation uh, period. And we're only going to scratch the surface on it this morning. We'll look to finish it uh, next time. But the, first this re, false religious system is described, you notice in Revelation seventeen one as a great harlot. And so four times in this chapter, verse 1, 5, 15, 16, the religious system is represented as a woman and that woman is referred to as a harlot. Repeatedly in the chapter, her sin is called fornication. And when God speaks about a harlot and he talks about uh, fornication as being the expression of her religious uh, system, he is intending for us as the reader to be mortified by it. It's intended to shock the reader And it's intended to impress upon us that whatever this woman is, whatever this religious system uh, is, that it is something that is appalling to God, appalling in His eyes, and it's to be avoided at all costs. And sometimes the use of a term like harlot or fornication, it uh, it loses its impact in in a a culture where uh, physical prostitution and fornication has become relatively commonplace and and really increasingly accepted. And thus, in in this passage, uh, I especially like the Old King James and its translation uh, of this because it does a favor for us in in this regard by unflinchingly translating uh, the word that describes her here as a whore. And and if any of us are offended by the the bluntness of that kind of language uh, in church, uh, and, and we're uncomfortable with that, it's important to realize that is exactly the point. This is intended to make a person sit up in their seat while they're reading through the book of Revelation and go, what in the world is this? And what do I have to do so that I am never a part of whatever this thing is that God is uh, talking uh, about? our modern modern culture, it's such a farce and... uh, and so two-faced. I mean, we're, we're always more troubled about the terminology uh, that is given to sin than to the sin itself or to the repercussions of the sin. So the idea is to rename everything as, to, as if that helps anything. And this is just never stops. I mean, I, re- I remember when I... Uh, first, read about this new epidemic that we have in terms of uh, called monkeypox now, and uh, and I uh, saw okay, it's sexually transmitted, and this and all of this kind of thing. I, it's in I said it's not going to take them any time at all before they're going to want to rename this thing in order to reduce the stigma associated with it. And sure enough. The first thing many people did was to call on this thing to, to, be, uh, to, to be renamed in order to uh, rescue people from the stigma of the disease as opposed to just warning the public about how to avoid contracting it. As if renaming anything makes a fundamental change at it, it, it all. Now, in describing this religious system as a great harlot, as a spiritual prostitute, The angel who is addressing the Apostle John here is contrasting this religious system with Christianity or with the church, which is likened to in the Scriptures as a chaste virgin bride. And the difference between a harlot and a chaste bride uh, is in the realm of faithfulness. A chaste bride is sexually faithful to one man, to her husband, and, and, uh, and even as the church and even as individual Christians are called to be to Christ. A harlot is not sexually faithful to any one man and she represents the fact that this spiritual Babylon, this false religious system that will exist during the tribulation period is not going to be faithful to God at all. But she will sell herself to the highest bidder during the tribulation period. She will sell herself to gain power and also to gain uh, wealth. A physical harlot is someone who is, will sell their purity for a price. They, have, they are someone who can be bought, they have a price. A spiritual harlot is someone who will compromise their spiritual convictions and their commitment to Christ for the right price. And so it is a person, it is a Christian who has anything in this world that someone could come up to me, offer it to me, and I would exchange my relationship with God for that something or for that uh, uh, someone and thus be unfaithful to Jesus uh, as a result. There's a story about a man who asked a woman if she would go to bed with him for a million dollars. And she said that she would. And he then offered her $20. And she was offended and she said, What do you think I am, a harlot? And he said, We've already established that. Now we're negotiating. Now that can be too strong for people as well. But it does something very, very good uh, in, in me. Because it drives home an important point concerning all of this. And it's a point that is very important to have as a part of our lives in in maintaining spiritual purity in this world as Christians. And the point is that it isn't the largeness of the price that would need to be offered to me to make me unfaithful to Jesus. It is that there is a price at all that makes me into a harlot. To forsake him for a nickel or to exchange him for the whole world, it's still all spiritual harlotry. And so clearly this spiritual Babylon is not going to be morally or spiritually demanding of its adherence during the tribulation period. The harlot is described second in verse 1 Uh, as a a harlot who sits on many waters and we're told in verse 15 that these waters represent peoples multitudes nations and tongues in other words it will be a one world uh, religion that will dominate every corner of the world during the tribulation uh, period It will not completely do away with all of the other religious systems of the world. Remember that when the Antichrist comes into power, one of the first things he's going to do is he is going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple and reestablish their religion based upon the temple. So it's not going to be the eradication of all other religion uh, in the world, but it will offer the population of the world, in the absence of Christians, a chance to be what we hear more and more about in the culture today, to be uh, spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And this has become uh, so popular of a movement, it, it, it's known by uh, its an acronym SBNR. Uh, in, ca- in case you think that uh, this is just a fringe movement in the United States of America, the Atlantic Magazine, January 11th, 2018 issue, estimated that fully 64 million Americans, one in five, identify as spiritual and not religious now to be fair you throw a net like that out you're going to catch a lot of people that don't have any idea what in the world you're saying there's a lot of christians that would uh, agree with that i'm spiritual but i'm not religious uh, but um but this is this a, is a, a a movement that is occurring uh, here today Quite independent and quite large, but quite independent of any misunderstanding about it. Now, there's a tremendous diversity within the ranks of, of those who end, identify as SBNR. But generally, what they do is they recognize the religious nature of man. They recognize that human beings cannot be fully satisfied in life or no peace in life Solely based upon what can be experienced in uh, the physical uh, plane and that man is meant to have a spiritual dimension to our lives and the belief in someone or something larger than ourselves, the recognition that we need to be anchored to something or someone who is greater than ourselves. And so it endeavors to offer spirituality without the baggage of a God or without the baggage of accountability, or without the baggage of absolutes, or dogmas, or commandments, or the submission to anyone greater than themselves, or even other than themselves. And so you can make it whatever you want. You're free to define it entirely uh, as you like and as it suits you. And by and large, the spiritual focus of SBNR is concentrated more on emotion. How it makes me feel in the moment uh, as a test for its legitimacy as opposed to uh, thought or as opposed to reason. Now, one of the weaknesses of, of this is that it can allow a person who is very selfish... In fact, terminally selfish, or self-willed, or proud, or rebellious against authority, even God's authority, and to see these things as a virtue, and then to make them a part of this spiritual thing in their life, only to ingrain these things even more deeply into their life by regarding them as uh, assets, as spiritual things that characterize my life. And giving it the veneer of of spirituality then protects those things uh, that will destroy a life from ever being touched from the outside. Now, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, In human history at the start of the tribulation period. As he works kind of to consolidate uh, the power of, of the world. He's going to bring all of it under himself. He won't announce to the world in those early stages that I'm demonic to the core. Uh, I am possessed by the devil uh, hi- himself, or that he hates God or 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 hates religion. These are things that he will keep under his cap for for a while in that tribulation period. Initially, he is going to seek a veneer of respectability, so he will portray himself as being spiritually and religiously very, very. Uh, tolerant and he's gonna pacify any concerns that any religious people that remain on the earth after the rapture is that he's not going to change any of that uh, a- a- at all he's not a threat gonna be a threat as he's gaining all of this power I am NOT a threat to uh, religious tolerance and religious uh, practice and again after all he's going to make a covenant with the Jews and allow them to rebuild the temple in the first half of the tribulation period. And as we'll see, he will allow this spiritual Babylon to feel like they have the upper hand in the relationship between them and him all the way till the moment that he turns on it and he destroys that, as we'll talk about that uh, another time. And that probably happens at the midway part uh, of the tribulation period. And he will destroy, verse 16 He will destroy spiritual Babylon and he will unsuccessfully seek the annihilation of the Jewish people. And it will only be God coming in to protect a portion of them that they will not be completely uh, annihilated as he desires, as we saw in chapter 12. And so for the first three and a half years through the Antichrist, Satan is going to come to the world in his most dangerous form. He's going to come as an angel of light. Now, finally, for us here this morning, and uh, it's not a two-minute finally for those of you whose hearts... um, I might have induced arrhythmia in uh, some of you. But... The third thing that we want to look at related to this harlot is that this false religious system is described in verse 5 as Mystery Babylon the Great. And here, once again, what is vital to understand the book of Revelation is for some understanding of the Old Testament. The key to understanding Revelation is the Old Testament. 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 278 of them are directly associated with the Old Testament. The rest of the verses are easily understood in their context. But the book of Revelation uh, reveals itself to someone who has some working knowledge of the Old Testament. And so, understanding a little bit about ancient Babylon is critical to understanding chapter 17 and chapter uh, 18. The name Babylon is derived from the same Hebrew word as Babel, which is first mentioned in the book of Genesis chapter 10 in connection with a man by the name of Nimrod. And in Genesis chapter 10, Nimrod established or he built uh, this city called uh, Babel. The name Babel is a compound of two ancient words, Bab meaning gate, El meaning God. And so he named it the gate of God. Now... The Bible's description of Nimrod there in in Genesis chapter 10 is that he was a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And so his name Nimrod is derived from uh, Marad, the, the word that means rebel or let us revolt. And in the Jewish understanding of, of Genesis chapter 10 and 11, has long identified Nimrod as the builder of the Tower of Babel uh, and, and built in rebellion against God. And those two chapters, uh, chapters 10 and 11 uh, of Genesis bear that out. Babel is mentioned formally in in the greatest detail in chapter 11 as we read as a part of our scripture reading. So when God speaks about this mystery Babylon religion that's going to exist during the tribulation period, he's not talking about something new. What he's talking about is as old as Genesis chapter 11. And and He intends us to go back there to find the roots of what will constitute the foundation of that religious system uh, when it comes. And you notice as we read there in Genesis chapter 11, the characteristics of the Tower of Babel. uh, Number one, it was a deliberate attempt and a deliberate rebellion against God's Word, His commandments. God had commanded mankind... Genesis 9, 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And what God was doing there was reiterating a command that he had given to Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so here they are. They are determined to disobey God's commandments. They are determined to do as they liked instead and to stick together in the land of of Shinar. As you notice in verse 4, the end of that verse, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Second, the Tower of Babel was a very organized Rebellion against God and his word. You have mankind purposely uniting to rebel against God. Three times in that passage that we read in Genesis 11, there's the repetition of the words, let us, let us, let us, associated with their disobedience. The exalting of what they wanted to do above what God had commanded them to do. And then third, the Tower of Babel represents really the ultimate in kind of Old Testament imagery and in history, the ultimate in man thinking that he can approach God on his own terms and on the basis of his own good works and his own uh, human effort. That a person can enter into heaven based upon human wisdom uh, and effort, can enter into heaven uh, uh, based upon being the initiator. And so we're told in verse 4, they decided to build a tower whose tops is in uh, the heaven. We we don't need God's ways, His commandments, what He says about how a person gets into heaven. We just have to work hard and we can accomplish it on our own. And then fourth, the Tower of Babel represents a religious system that is man-centered, very man-centered as opposed to being uh, God-centered. And so again in verse, uh, four, uh, 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 chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 4, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, and the tower whose, whose top is in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so it is a religious system that gives the appearance of being about God. Uh, most religions have to do that in order for the religion to have some legitimacy. And so they, they give the appearance of being about God for the sake of their own legitimacy, but it's really just another excuse to exalt man and exalt uh, man's wisdom. Just another excuse for man to worship himself. And it isn't that these kind of people don't like uh, church. They do. They they want spiritual activity. They want spiritual assembly. They just don't want it to be about God. They want it to be one more place in the world that is about uh, Us one more place in the world where we can worship ourselves, but legitimize the worship of self by giving it a veneer of uh, spirituality, and then the church becomes just like everything else in the world. Now, fifth, ultimately, Babel became known in the Bible by its equivalent in the in the Greek language, and that is Babylon. And if Babylon was known for one thing in the ancient world, uh, it was known for its idolatry. And it's mentioned over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Maybe Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 38, if you're just going to pick one verse uh, to drive home the point, this would be it. God declared concerning Babylon, a drought is against her waters and they will be dried up. For it is a land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. They had so many idols and so many different things that they worshipped. Now, idolatry is essentially the worship of any created thing. The, the, the universe that we live in is, is really uh, uh, subdivides uh, very simply and very neatly. Uh, and, uh, and everything in it in one category and it's a category of one there is God there is the creator and then everything else is the creation and the creator is infinitely greater than the creation by virtue of having created the creation so those are the two categories and idolatry is to worship anything other than the creator who is to be blessed forevermore. And all of this starts to lay a foundation that we'll need to have when we get to Revelation chapter 18 where you have commercial Babylon introduced and God's judgment upon a commercial system that's going to fill the world during the tribulation as, as well that will endeavor to convince mankind that contrary to what Jesus taught, that life really does consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. And then uh, what it will do is demand a place in people's lives that should only belong to God and which can only safely belong to God. And then concerning spiritual Babylon, number six, Babylon historically was a terrible persecutor of God's uh, people, the worshipers of the Lord. And as we'll see next time, God willing, in uh, Revelation chapter 17, we'll see that this will also be true of this spiritual Babylon. The funny thing about this kind of thing and this spiritual Babylon is it will give the appearance of being so tolerant. You can believe what you want. You can make up whatever you want. You can worship whatever you want. It's all yours to uh, self-define. And yet the only group in the world they will make martyrs of are tribulation saints, Christians. Tolerant of everything, everything in the world except that one thing, except the true thing, and accept the truth of God. And it's always the case. That's why it's a badge of honor to be the object of persecution by many of these kinds of things because they recognize the difference and they recognize the threat that truth is, and God is, the God of the Bible and Christianity is, to the farce that they are trying to pull over on everyone. Now, so we summarize here that what characterized ancient Babylon Babylon and Babylon spiritually will also characterize this tribulation period religious system. It will have zero regard for the commandments of God. It will not acknowledge His authority at all. It will will advocate for self-righteousness. It will tell people, you can approach God just on your little old lonesome self. That won't be any kind of a problem at all. You can approach God on your own terms. You can approach God any way that you choose. That God can be approached on the basis of human effort and on the basis of, of human wisdom. That you don't need to put your faith in Jesus Christ in order to gain a legitimate righteousness that will be required for, for heaven. And then third, it's going to be a religious system that will be man-centered as opposed to God-centered. It will be all about exalting man and exalting self as opposed to exalting God. And then fifth, it will be characterized by idolatry, the worship of the creation, whatever that might be, rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. And of course, the worst and most prevalent idolatry is the worship of self. And then number six, it will be a terrible persecutor of those who worship the Lord. And So this morning, we just have started to examine uh, God's description of this spiritual Babylon that's going to exist during the tribulation period, and it'll take another week to uh, conclude it. But what we learn here thus far is that she will be a religious harlot that God will judge very very severely and what we learn from the chapter will certainly need to be heeded by the tribulation saints it complicates our thinking a little bit because we look at it and we think okay the tribulation saints christians that become christians during the tribulation period all they're going to have to do in terms of choices that they need to make during that period is either choose to remain faithful to christ or choose to take the mark It's more complicated than that. They will have to not take the mark, but there will also be this entire worldwide religious system that is teaching something and is madly popular, contrary to what will be required of them to remain faithful to Christ during the tribulation period and to remain faithful to Christ in, in opposition to that system, even when it means martyrdom. Which is what will be required for uh, most uh, of of them. But it isn't just something that is here to teach the tribulation saints when they read uh, avidly and and, uh, uh, hungrily read the book of Revelation, living it out right in front uh, of their eyes. Uh, It has something to say to us as Christians even today. Because to the degree to which these same things are developing all around us and, and gaining momentum all around us is the degree to which this world is being set up for this great religious deception that is going to occur during the tribulation period. Again, it'll be marked by spirituality without God, Advocating self-righteousness. I can make myself good enough uh, for God. And then also by being self-centered and man-exalting as opposed to being uh, God-centered and God-exalting. And God looks at all of it and he uses the strongest language that uh, you can use and still have it used in the Bible. And he says, it is spiritual whoredom. And don't let his description of what comes under that banner and the strength of that description ever become something that is lessened in our hearts in viewing this kind of thing for the danger, the seductive danger, that it is. Any religious system in the world Period. Any religious system in the world that claims to represent Christ and denies the necessity of being born again as Jesus called us to be in order to enter into a relationship with God is spiritual whoredom it reveals itself to be something that exists. Not to glorify God, and not to help man, but there is some other gain in play. Whether it is to be accepted and gain the applause of man, or to become rich, Or to have power and authority over masses of people. There is some price. There is some harlotry involved. And it is only this that is not a part of that spiritual harlotry. Both in that day and today. I feel sorry for the person. I got saved back. In 1980, got walking with with the Lord. Things were simpler back then. For, number one, there wasn't social media, and there wasn't computers and i like i don 't like social media, but I, but I like my iPhone and I like my computer and all of that kind of stuff, so i 'm not a grumpy old man. <laughs> but you know. You didn't have as many voices speaking for God in the world. It was pretty simple back then. It was like, okay, I'm going to live for my flesh. I'm going to live for um, uh, my own desires for sin or, or, uh, or there's, gonna, there's Christianity over here. But now you've got so many voices claiming to represent God. So many voices claiming to know the way, to be the spiritual authority. So where do you turn? Where do you turn to find the truth when the stakes are eternally high? And I stand before you this morning as a representative of God Almighty. And I tell you, you turn to Jesus. You make Him yeah, you make him your shepherd and read anything you want in the Bible about Him to find anything wrong with Him that would disqualify Him from being any of our shepherds. You make Him your shepherd and then He will guide you through the spiritual chaos and confusion and babble of this world. And so, so many voices. If you are not a Christian here today, or you don't even know what that means when somebody says that kind of thing, that's, that's okay. They, I, they, there, are, there are multiplied Thousands of religions in the world, or denominations that claim to represent Christ, even within Christianity—not even talk. I mean, you're talking about Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, talk, and not even talking about non-Christian religions. How can you sift through that in your entire lifetime? And so it comes down to this issue. This is the big issue: Is am I born again? And Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now that's real simple. I can understand that in the midst of the confusion. And what being born again is, is coming to God and saying to God, I accept your assessment of me as a sinner. I've known that I've been a sinner all of my life all the fibs i told every one of my friends in elementary school all of the pieces of brock's candy i stole it's safeway in napa california when my mom wasn't looking (laughs) and on and on and on it goes to bigger and greater sins so i'm never offended By God's calling me a sinner, when I understand it means to be less than perfect, but to be less than perfect disqualifies me for heaven. And I don't want him to be less than that holy. And so, yes, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner, that my sin has separated me from the relationship with you that I've been created for, but I also believe that you loved me and the whole world so much that you sent your only begotten Son to die on that cross and be buried and rise again on the third day so that I could believe in your salvation and in your Savior and now turn from my sin and trust in Him, and now follow Him the rest of my life and for the rest of eternity. And when a person makes that decision to put my faith in Christ for salvation, the greatest miracle any person can ever experience occurs. The Holy Spirit comes into our life, and we're born again by the Holy Spirit. Has that happened in your life? And if it hasn't happened, in your life we're going to be up in front immediately after the service and we'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you have been created for and then you'll know you're home you're home and now you will have a shepherd that will guide you through not just the political not just the monetary, not just the geopolitical chaos of the world, but the worst chaos, the religious and spiritual chaos of this world. And that person is Christ. He wants you saved this morning. We want you saved this morning. And so come to Him. For all of us in the room here today, if you have any need for prayer in your life, These same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, nobody talks like this in this world the way that you talk to us with a clarity, that is so perfect and is so simple to understand and not filled with confusion tells us, you tell us the truth about ourselves you tell us the truth about our need you tell us the truth about your provision for that need in your your son you tell us the truth about the spiritual harlotry that surrounds us and everyone in this world. And we thank you that you do so that we don't end up deceived in the course of our pilgrimage, but so that we can come home to you. And we pray, Lord, for every person that stands before you right now that is not yet a Christian, that today would be the day that they would surrender and come into the truth, Lord, and to begin to follow You as they start a new relationship with You, to be born again. Thank You, Lord, for Your truth. Thank You for the anchor that You are in our life. Thank You as we began for being the solid, immovable thing in our life. Again, not just economically, and geopolitically, and socially, and morally, but spiritually. And we thank you in the name of the one who made it possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.